I wonder if any of you have experienced rejection. I'm sure most of you have. And being rejected is just a terrible feeling, isn't it? When you ask somebody out for a date in your younger years and you get rejected. Or maybe you want to take your mom or dad out, but because of some relational differences or issues, they reject you. Or maybe you even feel like you're kind of turning a corner and your grown children are beginning to reject you. Being rejected feels terrible, but I think that it feels even more terrible when we get rejected by somebody, yet we watch somebody else get accepted by that person who rejected us. And so maybe an example could be we think we deserve the job promotion. We get rejected for that job promotion and somebody else, less qualified maybe, gets the promotion. We get rejected while other people get accepted. And that's just a terrible feeling. But how would you feel if God rejected you and accepted somebody else? This really ups the issue, doesn't it? It's not as though it's a mere human that is rejecting you, but that it's actually God who's rejecting you and accepting somebody else. And this is not the view of God that the church often has, is it? Because we often kind of think the other way around, that God's kind of pandering and, and kind of like, oh, I just wish people wanted to be with me. We usually don't think of God in the position of rejecting people. We usually only think of Him in terms of, oh, He'll just accept anybody. But what if God rejected you and accepted somebody else? Is this not what happened to Cain in Genesis, or in Genesis chapter 4? Verse 5, look at verse 5. It doesn't just say, but for Cain's offering, that that was rejected. Verse 5 says, but for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. Remember what we looked at last week. God looked at Cain's offering, and within his offering, he saw the heart of Cain. And what God saw was the heart of someone who did not give the first fruits. He saw the heart of a wicked person. He saw the heart of somebody who didn't genuinely love him. Yes, he was in the presence of the Lord, worshiping him. But he didn't genuinely love God, and God knew that. And in contrast to that, you see Abel. And Abel is just this shining example of faith. He's got this heart that is shining like the sun in the eyes of God. A heart of faith offering the best that he had. You remember that he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions of that animal. He brought the best to God. So Abel and his offering was a sweet smell to God. But Cain and his offering was a stench. Proverbs 21 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Cain was wicked. His sacrifice was an abomination to God. And in his compressed short way, the author of this text, Moses, he just simply declares, God did not accept Cain or his offering." And so how does Cain respond? How would you respond? Cain responds in the rest of verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Put yourself in Cain's position here. You leave worship today 
like he left worship with his brother on that day. And a booming voice from heaven indicates to you that you and your worship this morning were not accepted. How would you feel about that? Like, I just spent an hour and a half in that building, and you're not going to accept my worship, right? What would your reaction be? If you heard or you knew that God didn't accept you and your offering today, your worship, how would you respond? Would you be filled with anger like Cain? says that his face fell. You, you know what that looks like. You, you can see when somebody's face falls. That the countenance has fallen. Would you be jealous of maybe all of the other people that God accepted? Would you get blustery and offended that God didn't accept you and your offering? Or would you repent? Would you say, you know what, God? You're right. My heart is wicked. My worship is a stench because it was done out of my own selfish, driven ambitions. It was done out of my own hypocrisy. But this is the first point that I want us to see this morning from our text. And you can see the three points that I have on the back of your bulletin this morning. And that we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Instead, we must repent of our sin before the Lord. Look at verse 5 again. The end of verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So there's a couple of points within these first verses that I want you to see this morning. And the first is that we must repent of our sin. You see in these verses that Cain is miffed about what has happened in worship. He is angry. His countenance has fallen. And you notice what the Lord asks Cain. He says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And I think the implication is more like, what right do you have to be angry? Like, I'm the one that's supposed to be worshipped here. I'm the one who was offered up some lousy sacrifice. You're the one with the wicked heart. So why do you get to be angry? Because I'm really the one who ought to be angry with you. I think that's really what's going on here from God's perspective. That what's going on is that Cain had offered a selfishly driven sacrifice with a wicked heart. He has no right to be angry. God's the one who has the right to be angry. But God asks another question. And I love, by the way, how God comes in Genesis chapter 4 and he's asking questions in order to provoke repentance from Cain. In a chapter before, Satan comes along, or excuse me, chapter 3, Satan comes along asking questions of Eve. For what? To tempt her. But when God asks questions, it's to bring about good. When Satan is to bring about evil. But God goes on and he asks another question. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
It's almost like God is taking his finger and just sticking it right on the pulse of Cain. Cain is mad he wasn't accepted, while Abel was accepted. And so foundationally, Cain's anger is born out of his jealousy for his brother. God would accept Cain if he would do well, just like he had accepted Abel, because he had done well. But notice how God asks these questions. Again, it's not to provoke Cain. God's not asking questions, just kind of push Cain along and to try to get him to commit the deed at all, which is what Satan would want to do. God is asking Cain these questions, and what he's doing is he's giving Cain an opportunity to repent. He's keeping the door open here. He's, he's teasing things out of Cain in order to bring about repentance. This is what any wise father or mother would do with their child. That when your child has done something wrong, do you not bring them aside and ask them some questions? And and then give them the information that they need. And that's what God is doing here. He's really taking the role of father with Cain. He's asking him questions. And he's telling him, look, if you do well, you will be accepted. And so he's seeking Cain's repentance. But what happens? Cain only gets harder, doesn't he? His heart only gets, it turns more into stone. It just gets harder and harder as time goes along. But when we think about repentance, I wonder what you think of when you think about the word repentance. What is repentance? It's kind of in our Christianese language. We use the word repentance all the time. Charles Spurgeon defined it like this. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. Repentance is when you discover some sin, you mourn over that sin. You're you're sad, you're grieving over the fact that you are sinning. But then there's a resolution to forsake it. Spurgeon goes on, It is in fact a change of mind, of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated, and hate what once he loved. Yet this discipline is something that has fallen on hard times in evangelicalism. You do not hear much by way of repentance. You do not hear much in sermons or in the church about repentance. Worse than that, you don't hear many Christians talking about this and practicing this in their lives. And we don't like the subject of repentance because to say that somebody needs to repent is to say that somebody got something wrong. And in today's culture, is there anything worse than telling somebody that they're doing something wrong? Who on earth likes to be told that they're wrong? I don't. Paul talks about repentance in 2 Corinthians, and he specifically references what leads to repentance, which he says is godly grief. Have you ever grieved over your sin? Do you regularly grieve over your sin? Guilt. Mourning. Paul indicates that this is good. There's plenty of people who would profess to be Christian preachers. And they would tell you that, no, 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 you, you don't want to grieve. Like we're building up self-esteem. You don't want to grieve because that would be the opposite. No, you, you must grieve over sin. You must mourn over your sin. Ache over our sin leads us to come to a position of humility before holy God, understanding that He alone is the one that can forgive us. He alone can give us the grace to stand before Him. Friend, we need to understand that repentance is not only necessary for salvation. Repentance is necessary for spiritual vitality. If you are not regularly repenting of your sin, 
you will not be spiritually vital. I like what Tim Keller has said. He said, the strongest Christians are the, mon- are the ones most willing to repent. Strongest Christians are the ones who are most willing to repent. And I think that's true. The strongest Christians I know are the ones that are willing to repent consistently, daily, of their sin. Repentance is not simply some sort of outward conformity where we're trying to get everybody to look the same way and to act the same way. It's an indication of an inward change. It requires a deep humility before God, trusting that if we are humble before God in repentance, God will grant grace to us. Brother or sister, if you've never had a genuine grief or guilt over your sin, I'd ask you to search your heart diligently this morning. Could it be that you are in the position of Cain right now, worshiping in hypocrisy, Worshipping with a wicked heart this morning in desperate need of the grace of repentance. The reality of all of this is that if we do not repent of our sin, our lives will inevitably unravel. God may very well give us over to our sin. And what would that be called? That's judgment, which we'll get to at the end of our text here. But we can't think for a moment that we are not tempted to react in the kind of way that Cain react this morning. That we're so often tempted to react in a way that is utterly sinful when we're approached in regard to our own sin. And so I, you shouldn't expect a booming voice from heaven when you walk out the doors today saying, I accept you, I don't accept you, or things like that. But there certainly are moments within all of our lives that we desperately need somebody to come to us and tell us, brother, sister, you are wrong here. How would you respond if another brother or sister within this congregation knocked on your door or took you out to coffee and began to ask you about some sin that is evident in your life? How would you respond to that? I think most of us would get extremely defensive, wouldn't we? That you're you're approaching me on my sin? we, we, We tend to get offended. We get defensive. We get angry. Our countenance falls. We respond very much like Cain. And we begin to think things like, well, I know what you did a few years ago. Why are you coming to me? I know what you did a few years ago, right? We begin to twist scripture, don't we? We begin to immediately, someone talks to us about our sin and we think, oh, well, they probably have a beam in their eye. I only have a speck in my eye. Like, we begin to like, use scripture for our own advantage, don't we? Or we twist more scripture. Like in Matthew chapter 7, we'll say, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Right? Like those are our go-tos when we're feeling defensive when somebody comes to us. We cannot stand being rebuked. And if I'm honest... I'm the chief of this. I used to, there was a, a guy that worked at the college I went to, and when he would preach, it was like every time he preached, it's quite annoying. He would say, he would like talk about something like this, and he'd say, I got both hands and a foot raised, you know, as he's like the biggest culprit. But I have both hands and a foot raised, however annoying that looks. That when somebody comes to me and approaches me on my sin, I hate it. I do react like Cain, I get upset. My countenance falls for days, right? We don't like being approached on our sin. But you know what the truth is? That I desperately need to be approached on my sin. I need brothers and sisters in my life to correct me when I am walking out of step with the truth. I need people who love me enough to tell me when they see sin in my life. 
It's somebody who doesn't love me who won't bring up sin to me. But it's somebody who loves me who will approach me. The Bible says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Or in the Psalms, he says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And so it hurts. When somebody comes to us and approaches us on our sin, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It feels like, according to the psalmist, it's like getting struck, struck in the face, stricken, struck in, whatever, in the face, right? Like it hurts. It's like a wound. But it is faithful. It's a kindness. It's like oil on your head. We need it. Friends, this is why it's so important to be a member of a local church. To be with other brothers and sisters who are battling sin and fighting through. When you join a church family, our sin and our walk with the Lord becomes the responsibility of other people. We have a church covenant that's on the back wall there. And within that covenant, we covenant together and we promise one another that we will watch over one another in brotherly love. And like a loving brother or sister, we go to one another when sin is evident. That when you are caught in sin, you have brothers and sisters that love you enough to say, brother, sister, what's going on here? That's not a bad thing. That is a life-saving thing. But there's something else here in these verses in regard to how to interact with our sin. And we need to repent of it first, but also we need to rule over our sin. Look again at verse 9. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What a picture of sin. Sin is crouching at the door. This brings to mind like a cat-like animal, ready to pounce on its prey. That's exactly the way that it is with sin. That sin is always at the door. It's like a cat ready to jump. And once that cat gets you, there's no letting go. Every now and then you see those videos out in Africa or somewhere where the the cat, the cheetah, the lioness or whatever is on the pursuit, right? And they're going after that gazelle or whatever animal it is. It's incredible. But the lioness, she's got that prey in her sights and she springs into action after her prey. She grabs the neck and she refuses to let it go until she brings down her prey. This is a vivid illustration of the way that sin works. That sin in your life is always crouching at the door. What does God say? You must rule it. All throughout the pages of the Bible, people are getting pulled down by sin. Sin is crouching at the door. It jumps on them. It pulls them down. It permeates the entire human race. Yet here God is making a fascinating command to Cain. That you've got to rule over this thing. You must rule over sin. And I would submit that God is giving Cain a command that he cannot obey. Cain cannot obey the command of God to rule over sin because he cannot do it in and of his own strength. It's a complete impossibility. Just like once that little deer, you know, that little baby gazelle or whatever gets grabbed by that lion and it's not getting let go. It's got no match for the strength of the lion. In our own strength, we are no match for sin. We are no match for that prowler at the door, which brings us right back to the gospel. 
It brings us right back to God. It brings us right back to Jesus defeating our sin for us. It brings us back to the Holy Spirit giving us the power to have victory over sin in our life. So if you're going to have any hope of defeating this prowler at your door, it's only going to be in the power of Christ. It's only going to be in the power of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Our sinful passions and our desires have been crucified on the cross. In Jesus, the best way to rule over sin is to understand that sin has been crucified. Trusting in the work of Jesus, that He has taken away its power. So we live by the Spirit. Any spiritual life that grows in you, any good action that you commit, all of this is brought about by God. And so I think our prayer should be that of Augustine, the early church father, when he said, give what you command and command what you will. So far, God has created some space for Cain to repent, and he has not. God has told Cain that he must rule over sin. He cannot. And the next part we see is that Cain speaks to his brother and apparently gets him out into a field and he murders him. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Brother against brother. Fratricide. This is disturbing. The first murder that we see born out of Cain's anger. Like it's just like Jesus said. Remember when Jesus said that if you hate somebody, it's like killing them in your heart. That to hate somebody is to murder them in your heart. Yet for Cain, he hated his brother Abel so much within his heart that he actually went out and killed him. And where does it all begin? Temptation, allurement, enticement of desire like James talks about. And this takes root. And then sin, when it grows, it brings forth death. I've always been shocked by this. That you can have what seems so benign in Genesis 3, with them taking the fruit and eating it. Yet suddenly in the next chapter, it's murder. It's killing. We're reminded again of how the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the seed of the snake. Yet here we see the seed of the snake, Cain, crush the head of the seed of the woman, Abel. God comes and He asks Cain more questions. Again, He's drawing this out of him. Where is your brother? Again, like chapter 3, when God asks where Adam is. Remember, he goes after Adam's sin. He's like, Adam, where are you? God's not looking for information. God knows exactly what's going on here. He knows exactly what has happened to Abel. He sees what Cain did. And you can see how coldly Cain responds to God here. Just simply says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Nora and I like to watch, or excuse me, read some books together and it's from uh, this series called The Wingfeather Saga. I think I've mentioned them before. And they're written by a Christian, and they're really good and a lot of fun to read. But there are two sons in the story. And in the beginning of the story, they don't know that they're actually the sons of a king in a distant, from a distant land called Anira. 
And so both of these are princes. But in the story, they have it, there's a little bit of a twist on it, where the first son doesn't become the next king. It's actually the second son that becomes the king after the father dies. But it's the firstborn son to protect his brother. It's the firstborn son to be the throne warden. And he would protect his brother and he would have to give his life for the sake of his brother. He was in very, very much his brother's keeper. And here you have Cain, the firstborn son, unwilling to not only not protect his brother, but he kills his brother. He was to fundamentally love his neighbor as himself, yet he refused to do it. Take your Bible and turn over to the book of 1 John. When you see this in 1 John chapter 3. And for the record, Mike did steal a little bit of my thunder. So I'm actually, since he did such a good job on that, I'm going to go ahead and not talk about that. But I do want to talk about this, and we'll close with this. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now listen, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is talking about love within the body of Christ. In contrast with how the world is going to feel about the church. And he says that we have learned this all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. This is what you've known since the beginning. Don't be like Cain. Don't hate one another. Why did he murder his brother? Because he was of the evil one. His own deeds were evil. We should not be like Cain. We should be righteous like Abel, loving like Abel. And then he sums it all up by saying that if you hate somebody, you are a murderer. And if you are a murderer with hate in your heart for somebody, then eternal life does not abide in you. There is not enough room in the heart of one person to carry both hate and eternal life. You either have eternal life, or you have hate. Yet how often have each of us felt that hatred bubbling up within our own hearts toward another brother or sister in the Lord? And I wonder if God were to give us the eyes to see, if we would see the absolute carnage all over the church because of the hatred that we feel inside. Brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to check your hearts again. Do you harbor hate toward any brother or sister in the Lord? If you do, let's not soft pedal on John's words here. Eternal life does not abide in you. If you hate a brother or sister, eternal life cannot be in the same heart with you. Just as sure as eternal life did not abide in the heart of Cain upon murdering his brother, eternal life does not abide in the heart of the professing Christian who hates another brother or sister. But what about these consequences that Cain is going to have to endure? 
It's interesting because you see in verse 11, God says, and now you are cursed from the ground. What's interesting is that God has cursed the ground. He cursed the serpent and he cursed cursed Cain. But these are the three things or people that have been cursed. Cursed ground was going to work against Cain. All of his days, Cain was going to be a follower of the cursed serpent. And God says that he would be a vagabond, a fugitive, driven from the ground that he worked. And there's a lot of discussion there. Some of you have probably read some things that talking about um, the mark that was put onto Cain. And I will choose to be agnostic on what exactly that means. I, I don't know. Um, there's been a lot of things that have been um, posed. Uh, one that I read was basically there was a mark on Cain, but it wasn't necessarily like a tattoo or something like that, but it was more like some sort of symbol that was always with Cain that indicated that he was Cain and that nobody should murder him. Um, and there's other very racially driven ones as well, um, which are just terrible, I think, are just absolute nonsense. Um, but there's really just everything in between um, those couple. But he would be a vagabond. He would be a fugitive, driven from the ground that he worked. But most of all, you see within our passage in Genesis 4, that he would be hidden from the face of God. And at the last verse there in verse 16, that he was driven from the presence of God. Which I would argue would be the worst punishment that he would receive. To be driven from the presence of God. Cain, never able to come before the presence of the Lord for the rest of his life and for all of eternity. And friends, this is the worst consequence of our own sin. It's separation from God for all of eternity. Hell is going to be a terrible place, but it will be terrible not as much because of the fire or for the darkness. It's going to be terrible because those who are in hell will be forever driven from the presence of the Lord. In a place without His mercy, without His grace, without His love. Instead, a place of His eternal and tormenting wrath. This whole account is just harrowing, isn't it? Brother against brother, Cain filled with jealousy, anger, hypocrisy, eventually killing Abel. Yet this negative example of Cain teaches us so much. As John tells us, that we should not be like Cain who is of the evil one. And if we're to be successful in not being like Cain, it's vital that you and I live lives that are full of repentance. That we're repenting of sin committed toward one another and God. We also need to rule over our sin. But not in our own power, but in the power of Jesus. In the power of the Spirit ruling over our sin every day. But also there are times when we suffer consequences for our sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ whose blood does speak a better word than the blood of Abel, has borne out our ultimate consequences of sin and death for us. And He has given us life. Let's thank Him now. Lord, we do thank You for the new covenant that is in Your blood. A blood that speaks forgiveness. A blood that preaches cleansing and covers us. We're thankful for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We know that the only reason we can even worship You now with our hearts, however feeble they might feel, is because of Christ in them. 
Lord, by your Spirit, would you impress these truths from these passages on our hearts and minds? I'm thankful for how you're going to use this text in our life. And even within the, the body life of our church, that we would love one another with a brotherly love, to seek one another, to make our lives each other's business, to help one another, to repent consistently, together, over and over. We thank you for the growth that we've had. We're thankful for those who are here who want to walk in community together. We pray that you'll bring these great things about, Lord. We pray that you'll help us to repent, help us to rule over our sin. And Lord, even 